0: Welcome to episode 350 of District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Thanks for joining us today. I have two quick updates, very important conservation and gun updates for you guys to discuss. They'll be very brief because we're going to go more into detail, especially on the first one. But what is not getting, I would say, nuanced coverage is the new, or rather reversion to an old Bureau of Land Management rule that is being billed as new, because it is very bold in the way that it's being presented, but the new public lands rule, which is very similar to the very familiar BLM 2.0 planning rule from the Obama era, has made an emergence again. And I'm going to argue why this is not really true conservationist and some of the problems and questions i have of it and then we're also going to talk about florida becoming the 26th state to pass constitutional or permitless carry and how permitless carry is not going to lead to the wild west this is now a very widely accepted law it's not fringe because over half the states now have some semblance of permitless carry we're going to talk about both of these topics as succinctly and concisely as possible let's get to it on today's episode of the podcast on March 30th, the Bureau of Land Management, or more specifically, the Department of Interior, which oversees BLM, announced this new public lands rule to bring public lands management into modernization, as they call it. And this is how they describe it according to their press release. And then I'm going to describe Secretary Hallin's comments. They have a proposal to guide balance management of America's public lands for the benefit of current and future generations. They say this proposed rule, which will then be subjected to a 75 day comment period, provides tools for BLM to improve the resilience of public lands in the face of a changing climate, conserve important wildlife habitat and intact landscapes, plan for development and better recognize unique cultural and natural resources on public lands. They continue The proposed rule directly responds to the growing need to better manage public lands, waters, and wildlife in the face of devastating wildfires, historic droughts, and severe storms that communities are experiencing across the West, as well as to deepen BLM's collaborative work with community states and tribes to support responsible development of critical minerals, energy, and other resources which they don't want to do domestically. Ironically enough, they have said no to domestic projects all across the board. But let me continue. The proposal is consistent with strategies used by other state and federal management agencies to ensure the federal government has tools and direction to identify areas in need of restoration or conservation, as well as the ability to encourage investments in public lands to help balance the impacts of development. It will increase access to outdoor recreation by putting conservation on equal footing with other uses consistent with BLM's multiple use and sustained yield mission. I'm going to break down why this rule isn't going to do that very shortly. But here is Secretary Hallin's comment on this. As the nation continues to face unprecedented drought, increasing wildfires, and the declining health of our landscapes, our public lands are Under growing pressure, it is our responsibility to use the best tools available to restore wildlife habitat, plan for smart development, and conserve the most important places for the benefit of the generations to come. As we welcome millions of visitors to hunt, fish, and recreate on our public lands each year, which they're also undermining, it is now time to improve the health and management of special places. The new proposed rule would build on the historic investments in public lands, waters, and clean energy deployment. Provided by President Biden's Infrastructure Law and Inflation Reduction Act, which is a climate bill, not an inflation reducing bill, by directing land managers to identify and prioritize lands and waters through the land management process that require habitat restoration work, such as removing invasive species or restoring steam banks. Da, 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 da. And they mentioned that climate and biodiversity are going to be at the forefront for consideration. And they essentially want to tweak or rather prioritize a conservation lease. And they call a conservation lease a time-limited lease of public land that allows interested organizations to conduct specific restoration or mitigation activities and would generate revenue for the American taxpayer. They claim this tool has the potential to expand opportunities to accelerate restoration of big-game migration corridors or establish carbon markets. Ugh. For example, and directly responds to comments from state and industry partners on the need for a reliable path on public lands by which to pursue compensatory mitigation to facilitate development projects. But as I mentioned, climate and biodiversity are at the forefront of this. Now comes in my criticisms after I discuss why the Federal Public Lands Management Act already covers for conservation as a consideration for multiple use. You read the law as it's interpreted, and it states that it has to factor in conservation. It's already a given, and when you are obtaining permits for leases, whether it's for grazing or mining or the so-called other extractive activities, you have to also keep conservation in mind. You can't utilize every single thing and destroy it. You also have to balance out proactive use with conservation of you know different areas and also as a footnote as i've talked about before this is relating to 30 by 30 all of the other top down approaches but the united states in terms of our public lands we have 640 million federally managed public land acres which is wonderful i don't believe in eroding that this administration however is being dishonest with how many lands are already closed off to multiple uses you go to the us geological service that number conveniently left out of discussion amounts to 41% or 40.6% to be exact of lands, public lands already federally managed of those 640 million already closed off to multiple uses for conservation purposes. Here is what the FLPMA's definition of conservation is. In addition to A combination of balanced and diverse resource uses that take into account long-term needs of future generations for renewable and non-renewable resources, including but not limited to recreation, timber, minerals, watershed, wildlife, and fish, and natural, scenic, scientific, and historical values and harmonious and coordinated management of the various resources without permanent impairment of the productivity of the land and quality of the environment, with consideration being given to the relative values of the resource and not necessarily to combination of uses that will give the greatest economic return or the greatest... Greatest unit output. When Reuters was assessing what to make of this, they had said that responsible development that'll come from what to me strikes as BLM 2.0 planning, which I'll discuss what that is in a bit. They claim that responsible development of public lands, this is laughable. For instance, a solar project on public lands could compensate for the loss of wildlife habitat by restoring habitat in another area. Leases could also be used in terms of these conservation leases they're touting. To restore migration corridors for big game or to generate tradable offsets for carbon markets by preserving forests. My contention with these two so-called proposals as conservation leases, it's laughable to even consider a large-scale solar project on productive lands as anything remotely conservationist. Because you're having to destroy high-quality habitat because farmland has to be around very productive habitat, or rather um, high-quality habitat, if you are familiar with that, as you should be. And it'll degrade the quality of land when you put solar panels on productive lands to low quality habitat because you're having to use deforestation to clear the forest to make way for these solar panels. And also, if you don't know, carbon offsets are horrible, scammy, grifting things to say that you are virtue signaling, doing your best to offset your footprint, but has no measurable impact on making the environment better. What is conservationist about that? Nothing. And if That is to become the norm, this prioritization of these really invasive, environmentally destructive projects that are touted as clean energy, touted as conservation. This leads me very worried about what they're doing to multiple use. And the emphasis on prioritizing climate and biodiversity, these are nice buzzwords. Again, I don't think anyone wants to imperil biodiversity, but the solar project will actually imperil biodiversity, believe it or not, same with wind onshore and offshore, That's what they don't tell you about the trade-offs with that. But I looked at this language, and to me, it strikes as something very alarming coming from kind of this seminal guiding document from 2020, the Aspen Institute, which calls for moving away from multiple use to a public use model, which is a very deceptively worded, very nice-sounding, but very dangerous alternative called public use, which doesn't really give people, the public multiple uses, and I'm going to read for you from the Aspen Institute from their paper called Public lands We the People. Uh, it essentially called for policymakers to reimagine the management of public lands to deliver climate benefits. It argued that the interior and agriculture secretaries redesigned federal public land management to pres- to prioritize climate change as a central component of the missions of their various management agencies and it urged a hasty transition to public use management of federal lands to create, a system that addresses the twin crises of climate change and biodiversity loss. So these two buzzwords are evidenced in this Aspen Institute paper, which is calling for moving away from multiple use. And they're touting this plan, which is very reminiscent to BLM 2.0, as multiple use. So that leads me to believe this is not a multiple multiple use plan. This is a public use plan. And if you need more context behind public use, what that means, how that differs from multiple use, I've included everything in the show notes. Notice that those buzzwords are found in both the press release and the Aspen Institute document calling for a reimagining of multiple use as we know it to a public use model. So that leads me to believe that this plan is not multiple use. It is straying away from this. I argued this in town hall as well. And in addition, you have to see who is supporting this transition away from multiple use to this public use model i'm not taking things out of thin air this is what aspen institute is doing it's being used as a guiding template no doubt for the department of interior saying it's multiple use like this is gaslighting at the nth degree and the, the groups that are backing this they're not conservationist for the most part i have some one group that i really like is unfortunately backing this i You know, I don't fault them for doing this. I understand they don't want to step on anyone's toes, but I disagree with um, one group that I really like who is doing this. But for the most part, most of the groups who support this are very anti-hunting, anti-fishing, and very preservationist in their thinking. The Natural Resources Defense Council praised the rule as a timely opportunity to bring greater balance to Bureau of Land Management. Defenders of Wildlife, which is a serial litigant and no friend to hunters, stressed the importance of the rule for BLM to, quote, rebalance its priorities and safeguard habitats for wildlife that are trending towards extinction. The Center for Biological Diversity, which is probably one of the worst groups out there, I'm sorry to say that they're, they're a very dishonest broker in conservation and they are trying to pivot the direction to this public use model. They are very adamant about keep kicking stakeholders off the table, negotiating table. They're not honest brokers to work with. I'm going to reemphasize that here. They say that this rule doesn't even go far enough to their liking. They say the agency's time would be better spent addressing the root problems of public lands degradation and protecting these treasured places for future generations. Instead of addressing destructive mining, fossil fuel extraction, and grazing, this rule basically restates what's already the law. Major improvements are needed, so they can't have happy campers in this regard. Now, we have to go to some of the statements that are starting to pour in. The ranking member of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, John Barrasso of Wyoming, issued this following statement about the new proposed public lands rule. He says, in the 1980s, extremists used tree spikes to try and stop reasonable management of public lands. In 2023, they used decrees from Washington. Today's announcement from March 30th undermines the law's multiple use requirement of BLM lands. Wyoming families depend on access to public lands for energy and critical mineral development, grazing, forest management, and recreation. The Biden administration's extreme unilateral action will kill multiple use. This is a clear violation of the law. I will do everything in my power to stop this proposal. What does Barroso mean this is a clear violation of the law? This brings me to BLM 2.0 planning. This was a rule that was passed in the Obama era. Any casual observer will see that there are many parallels between this new plan and BLM 2.0 planning. They say we need to restructure what it is. and, And here's what... BLM's 2.0 initiative is, which was later killed by the Congressional Review. I'll explain that in a moment. So they say that this proposed rule, which was introduced in June 21st, 2016, is part of BLM's ongoing efforts to improve the way that the BLM develops land use plans that guide the management of public lands administered by the bureaus as authorized by the Federal Land Policy and Management Act of 1976. This proposed new rule is the culmination of over two years of outreach and discussion with state and local governments communities, stakeholders, and other government partners, and the public, and reflects many of the lessons learned and best practices developed over the last 40 years of land use planning. This proposed rule responds to the recommendations and concerns raised by state and local government stakeholders and the public to modernize and improve our public land use planning process in ways to make our efforts more collaborative, transparent, and efficient. If you remember What happened in that administration? They were not transparent. It was not collaborative. They were very selective who they worked with, and it wasn't efficient. And that is why, actually, when the Trump administration came in, you had both chambers of Congress, which were then flipped to Republican control by that time, plus President Trump proactively addressed this, and they used the Congressional Review Act to repeal this. I'm going to read for you why even someone like Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska was opposed to BLM Planning 2.0. Here's her reasoning. She stated it's not just because of multiple uses for extractive or productive uses of lands. She even called into question what this rule would do, this reimagining of BLM management of public lands, this multiple-use sustained-yield management of public lands that's guided public lands usage for a very long time. And she had applauded the Senate's passage, this is 2017, from March 2017, House Resolution 44 of the Congressional Review Act Disapproval Resolution to overturn Bureau of Land Management's Planning 2.0 rule. It was passed in the Senate by a 51-48 to vote, and then Trump eventually signed it for a signature. Murkowski said this, I am pleased the Senate agreed to return power and decision-making authority to those who actually live near BLM lands in Alaska and other Western states. If left intact, the rule would have harmed grazing, timber, energy development, mineral production, even recreation on federal lands. Once the president signs the resolution, Western stakeholders will no longer be relegated to the sidelines and once again be able to ensure that decisions are being made locally, not thousands of miles away at Balaam headquarters. And Murkowski sponsored the Senate version of the disapproval resolution, and many more had joined in on the House side as well. And she had spoke about the necessity of nullifying planning 2.0 rule, which it was, it was nullified, and working with the new administration to identify genuine improvements to BLM's planning process. She said at the time, our best option is to overturn planning 2.0 rule while we have the ability to do so under the Congressional Review Act and hold BLM accountable to the law and its multiple use mission. If we can do that here today, then we can work with our new Secretary of Interior, then Secretary Zinke, to make genuine improvements to the process. The Biden administration is re litigating past flawed rules, reintroducing them as something new. And because of the CRA being invoked, the agency, technically, it would broach on illegality, cannot recreate the same rule that was defeated by this revocation that came in 2017. So they're going to be in legal trouble if they pursue this, actually, even though they plan to put a 70 day comment period out there. And we're going to speak to someone who worked in the Trump administration who handled this issue in particular, this ensuring of BLM 2.0 being phased out very soon, early next week on the podcast. Be on the lookout for that and please share it when it comes out. I appreciate it. The Sunshine State has become the 26th state in the union to adopt constitutional carry. Earlier this afternoon, or rather late morning, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, backed by supermajorities, pro-gun supermajorities in the Florida legislature, fulfilled his promise that he made last year at the heels of his re-election campaign to pass constitutional carry were he to be re-elected. And obviously he was re-elected to very solid margins, 20 some odd percent close to that in that ballpark. And now Florida is the 26th state to pass permitless carry or constitutional carry out there. Now, this puts critics of constitutional carry, especially gun control advocates, in a bind. They have often said this is a very fringe policy. How dare states enact this? It'll lead to the Wild West. It ensures that criminals are going to have access to guns. But if you read the various different constitutional carry bills that have come out there, even though it does create a permitless carry regime, it doesn't abolish a permit system whatsoever. And they also have stipulations that those who are prohibited possessors those who cannot own guns legally or those who are have criminal violations on their record who are typically barred from owning guns they can't participate in permitless carry that's what they often miss when discussing these pieces of legislation and when i discussed constitutional carry for florida i think a few weeks back or at the tail end of last year i mentioned how florida's bill included that stipulation as well that it's not just willy-nilly anyone can do it criminals included no you have to be able to Prove that you don't have a criminal record and that's how they judge that you can do that. So it's not the Wild West. You have to be 21 years or older to be able to participate in this. And it doesn't change who is eligible to obtain a carry permit. And if you still want to have a concealed carry permit, which will still allow you to carry in certain other places that the permitless carry provision wouldn't allow you to, it doesn't deter you from keeping your permit if you you want to partake in permitless carry. I think people still maintain permit carry even in these new permitless carry states because, like I said, you can carry in certain places, certain public buildings that you wouldn't be able to carry under permitless carry. There are some restrictions that come with doing that. And it'll go into effect July 1st, 2023. That's coming up very soon, very quick. This is a good sign for the second amendment despite all the very obtuse policies that are emanating from the White House trying to stall people from legally obtaining firearms. This is not just one demographic of people obtaining firearms. You guys have heard me talk about the surge in firearms ownership reaching even demographics that we had never seen decide to take up arms lawfully and respectfully and responsibly. This is the second amendment is for everyone. It's not just for particular groups of people, for Republicans, for just people in the South, what have you. This is for everyone. This is a right that should be afforded to everyone. And that includes permitless carry as well. Nebraska is next on the docket to pass, if I'm not mistaken. They have a bill. I suspect it'll overcome hurdles that it encountered last year and pass this year and go to the new governor's desk. We shall see what happens. We'll keep tabs on that. But this is a great update for Second Amendment lovers everywhere. Kudos to Governor DeSantis for signing it into law. Let's hope more do. Thanks for listening to today's episode Make sure you're connected to us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And also on your preferred player, we recommend Apple Podcasts, where you can leave us reviews if you really like the content. Share the podcast with friends who may be interested in learning more about what's trending in conservation and the related industries that entangle with it and sometimes work against it as well. Thanks for listening to the show and stay tuned for the next episode.